All right, thank you. Praise the Lord for the message and song this morning. I hope that you were listening. Sometimes I sit and I listen to uh, the words that we're singing in the songs and wonder, um, you know, how many folks that maybe they're new to church, they haven't been to church, and there's so much that's there that if you don't know the Bible, it's kind of like, doesn't make a lot of sense to you. But what you heard this morning was the blessed assurance that we have in Christ Jesus as our Savior, the promise that He's given us from His Word, uh, that we can have eternal life. Uh, we sing about our being surrendered to Him and coming the way that we are. We don't have to change to come to Jesus. You just come to Jesus however you are. He's ready to receive you uh, and to love you. And then uh, the song in between where it talks about, you know, once upon a time I was God's enemy. Uh, now I'm His friend. And He made that happen. And so it's a wonderful uh, truth and song and a blessing uh, to see how God works and changes our lives. And we're going to see that this morning in the Scripture as well. And uh, John chapter 11 gives us the account of uh, of Lazarus. And Lazarus was a man who was close to the Lord, who, uh, who Jesus loved. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Uh, and then uh, he got sick and he died. Uh, and Jesus came and raised him from the dead. And so we're going to read about that this morning. Uh, for sake of time this morning, we're going to really look in the scripture here at about 46 verses. We're not going to read all 46 verses this morning. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of what's going on up to the point where we begin to read. We're going to begin reading in verse 38. But Jesus is with his disciples, and they're not with Mary and Martha and Lazarus at this particular point in time. They are, there's some distance between them. Lazarus gets sick. Uh, and the sisters send for Jesus to let him know uh, that Lazarus, someone that you love, is ill. I mean, sick to death sick. Um, and Jesus takes the information. He communicates with his disciples that we are going to go, but we're not going yet. We have to finish what we're doing here. And then once we're finished, then we're going to go there. And his disciples are thinking, he tells them that, he, you know, Lazarus is asleep. Uh, they take that to mean that he's just resting. But then Jesus explains to them, he clarifies, no, he died or he's going to die. Uh, and so they're kind of confused. This is the kind of thing that you would expect the Lord for someone that he loves so dearly to just drop what he's doing and run to his aid. But Jesus doesn't do that here. Uh, and so as he deals with this and as he continues, they make their way to uh, Bethany. And Martha meets them out on the road and she begins immediately, Lord, if you would have been here, it wouldn't have ended this way. If you would have just come when we sent for you, he, he wouldn't have died. You, you could have intervened. You could have stopped and prevented his death. I've seen you do it. I, I've witnessed you at work. And, uh, and then Jesus very tenderly, very compassionately ministers to her. He doesn't chide her. He doesn't scold her. He doesn't question uh, about uh, in a harsh way, where's your faith? He's just very tender. Uh, he's very compassionate. And then sins for Mary and she comes and of course they're devastated they're brokenhearted their brother whom they love has died at an early age uh, it's been long enough that he's already buried and they buried people in that part of the world very quickly even still today uh, it's much different than the way that we do things typically here uh, and so he he comes and as the people gather, the people that are gathered, it's not the typical fashion in which they would gather. There's already been the funeral procession. The professional mourners have already been in place. And there's a different crowd that's there that uh, is ministering to Mary and Martha, essentially, or they're mourning the loss of Lazarus themselves uh, as he deals with that. 
and then we see Jesus as he comes, uh, knowing that he's going to raise him from the grave, which is, this has always been very amazing to me, that even though Jesus understands fully that he is going to leave this place with a resurrected Lazarus and great joy in everyone's heart, he still stops and takes time to feel what they feel. He hurts with them. He in anguishes with them. The Bible says here in verse 35, he wept. And it's just amazing to me that the one who gave life and the one who would give life again to Lazarus is weeping with his people. And then the verse comes to mind where it tells us that we have a Savior, we have one that died for us who's been touched with a feeling of our infirmities. He has great capacity, even as God, to feel our hurt to feel our betrayal, to feel our disappointment. The things that we face in this life, he's already faced and overcome. And so as we're reminded and we see what he's doing here, he's wept and then the Jews and his movement and his expression of love to them is so great that the Jews that have assembled here, some of them who have assembled here to destroy him, look and they say, look at how much he loved him. There's no question the genuineness and the depth of Jesus' love for Lazarus. And then in verse 38, and, and they said, they questioned in verse 37, this man that's opened the eyes of the blind, if he would have been here earlier, he could have saved him. In verse 38, Jesus therefore again, groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. And it was a cave and a stone lay upon it. And Jesus said, take ye away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. And Jesus saith unto her, said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou sent me. And when he had thus spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary, and had seen the things which Jesus did, believed on him. But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees, and told them what things Jesus had done. And I want to speak to you this morning on the thought, the miracle of a new life. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would open our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would break us. I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in our sin the way that you saw it when you offered Jesus as a payment for that sin. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the truth of this scripture. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would change lives here today. In Jesus' name, and amen. You know, of all of the miracles that Jesus did in his ministry, I mean, and you stop and you think about it, he went places and he would just see someone that was in need and he would, uh, he would touch someone that had withered hands uh, and restore them. I remember when I was in junior high school uh, and we would, in that particular school that I went to, the first week of school, we went to camp. Uh, and we, it was a Christian school, and we started off the year with, uh, with camp and getting everybody's spirit on the same page and right. And it was, it was a great experience. But we had this guy in school who was born uh, without, I don't know exactly what the, the 
the disease name was that he was born with, uh, but he was very deformed in both of his arms. And he, uh, his hands were withered uh, and his arms were drawn up like this and his hands were withered down like this and there wasn't really any muscle on them. They just looked like uh, skin uh, stretched over bone. I mean, it was, and he was always joyful. He always was happy. Uh, and even with other kids, as cruel as kids are, uh, being like doing the things that kids do, he always just seemed to have a joy about him. And I remember thinking, you know, how is he going to survive a week at camp? And so they had uh, like a, a Velcro wristband kind of a thing with a fork and a, uh, a spoon on it so that he could uh, feed himself. If somebody fixed his food and put it in a bowl, then he could scoop it out and he could eat. And, uh, and of course, he had to have help with a lot of things, even getting dressed and things of that nature. He had to have uh, help with. And I just think of, uh, of him and somebody like that. And then Jesus just walking through the town, coming to him and, uh, and saying, uh, you're well. And, and if you were standing there watching that flesh fill in and muscle be restored under the skin and the skin stretch and the arms loosen and the hands become, begin to move. and Maybe somebody in their ankles or their legs would be affected that way and uh, others would be blind and Jesus would come to them and he would just speak and sometimes he would do other things. But when he left, they could see miracle after miracle after miracle. Of all the miracles that Jesus did, I find that you have to consider at least the possibility that this is the most powerful. Amen. In my mind, there's no, power, no miracle greater in power and in demonstration of his deity than this miracle. Say, well, Pastor, this isn't the only person that he raised. No, it's not. And well, honestly, we don't know how many people Jesus raised from the dead. He could have raised hundreds of people from the dead for all we know. The Bible tells us in John chapter 21 and verse 25 that if we wrote, if they were to write down everything that Jesus did, that the world itself couldn't even contain the volumes, the books of it. Now, Jesus was constantly touching lives and touching bodies. And what we have in the Gospels is not a record of every miracle that Jesus did. It's just a small picture of a few of the things that Jesus did. Now, having said that, it's possible that these are the only people that Jesus raised from the dead. He raised, uh, accounted in the scripture for counting himself. Uh, and so when you look at the first three, and we're going to look at them briefly this morning by way of introduction, because I, I think it's important that we understand the depth of this particular miracle and what Jesus does here for Lazarus. The first person that Jesus ever raised that's recorded in the scripture is a, is a widow woman's son in the town of Nain. It's recorded only in Luke's gospel in chapter number seven. Most of the time when you find uh, powerful, powerful stories and miracles that were done, uh, deep doctrinal teaching in Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, you see them in all three books. But this one is unique in that only Luke records it in his seventh chapter. And in this funeral procession, this young man has died. His mother, a widow, is walking with him. In those days, they hired professional mourners to, to put on a big, uh, a big almost parade, if you will, uh, uh, as they walked the casket out or the buyer out to, uh, to the burial place. And so they're walking out. They're going out of the city uh, at Nain, and Jesus comes upon uh, this, this procession, and he walks up, and he uh, makes his way through the crowd, uh, and he places his hand up by the buyer, and he speaks, and the young man, and you can imagine being the guys carrying that coffin up on your shoulder, walking out of the city, and all of a sudden, uh, there's a rustling inside of it whenever Jesus speaks and tells them to, uh, to get up, and they open it, and the young man gets up, and he's alive. 
the next resurrection we see is recorded in, uh, in Luke chapter number 8, but also in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 5. It is a story of, a, of a, the ruler of a synagogue named Jairus. When Jesus came, he came by boat, and Jairus and a crowd of people waited to receive him there at the dock. And as he got off and came in and began to make his way, there was a tremendous crowd that was moving with him. That's also the passage that records the story of the woman who had uh, an issue of blood for a number of years and spent all that she had trying to get doctors to help her correct her, uh, her problems uh, and to no avail. There was no hope for her. Uh, and she touched the hem of his garment, you'll remember. And when she did, then Jesus felt the virtue, the power leave him and she was immediately healed. And in the meantime... Uh, the, the servants of Jairus come and they tell him, don't bother the master any further. Your daughter has died. We don't even know her name. But she died. And Jesus said, take me to her. And so they make their way there and they make their way through the crowd. And as they are making their way through the crowd and they come, uh, they get to those professional mourning starting to gather. And those professional mourners, when they come, they, uh, that's basically what they did. That was their job. They would just go and they would uh, grieve with families and mourn with families. And, uh, and they were around death all the time. And so Jesus comes in and he says, make way. Uh, and he says, don't, don't fret, don't worry, don't mourn. She's not dead. She's just asleep. And they might mocked him. They said, they said, we know death. Death is our life. That's what we spend all of our time and energy in. And, uh, and Jesus said, you may know death, but I know life. Amen. And he goes into the room and as he goes into the room, he walks and he looks at her and he says, and he takes uh, three of his disciples and he takes her mom and dad and he takes them into the room and he speaks and, uh, and she breathes back again. Life comes back into her and she was dead for only a short time. We don't know how long the widow Nain's son was dead, but we know it was in all likelihood less than 24 hours or no more than that because of their customs of the day uh, and because they didn't embalm people. They wanted to get people buried before decomposition started and uh, and there are a lot of places in the world that still uh, do that today. They do things very quickly to combat that, especially if they're in hot climates. And, uh, and so uh, the widow uh, is buried her son. He was dead for a while. This little girl had been dead for, uh, uh, you know, maybe uh, an hour or two. Uh, but she clearly was deceased. And Jesus speaks and she's brought back to life. Uh, and there's a few people that are there. But Lazarus is different. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Lazarus has been buried for probably three of those days. And he's just there in the cave. The stone has been set. The grave has been sealed. I remember going to uh, Brother Sonny Fritz's, one of our missionaries' funeral down in Monterey uh, a few years back and uh, and being there with a the family and uh, walking up the cemetery and it was at the, the, the day of the dead uh, kind of time of the year so every the vendors were lining the, the, the cemetery so people could decorate the graves and I mean they were selling tacos and tortillas and corn on the cob and uh, every at the cemetery and it was just like a big festivity and everybody's got their face painted white you know with all of the, uh, the even at the hotel that we stayed at they were wearing their black suits and white shirts and ties with their face all painted up uh, and so when we go and I, I remember looking and standing there at Brother Fritz's grave uh, and it was just different there. Uh, they were a rarity that he was embalmed. That was a very rare thing in Monterey. Uh, and it was hot and it was late in the year. It was in October, but it was still uh, really warm there. And 
I remember standing there over the grave and uh, it's just a, a, a big chasm that's built and filled with concrete and the walls are all built up with a big monument on top. Uh, and then they take one casket and it was big enough for four, I think, caskets. They put one, and then they put a thin layer of uh, a thin layer of I don't even know what the board's made out of, and they, they lay them out, and then they put a thin layer of concrete over top of it to seal it. Then when the next family member passes, they break that loose and they repeat it, and then and then just seal it back up in the same way until it's full. Uh, and I think about that. I think about it's all sealed and it's all done, and that's Lazarus' grave. It was there, and it was it was sealed. The stone was in place. And for four days they've been there and they've been mourning. They've been waiting and, uh, and uh, they're, they're not going anywhere. And Mary's there and Martha's there and these other people are there. And then Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, the crowd, the, the people following him. Now some of them are his disciples. They're with him everywhere he goes. Others uh, are disciples but not the twelve uh, that, that sincerely want to learn of him. They sincerely want to experience him. They sincerely want uh, him to influence their lives. And then there are those that wanted to destroy him. And they come so that they could find things out that they can then report back to the authorities to try to eliminate him. Now, when you read the, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're called that because they kind of sync. They tell the same story often in different ways. They believe that really the, the driving force between his crucifixion was the driving out of the money changers. But, uh, but when you get to uh, this particular passage, uh, it seems to indicate that the resurrection of Lazarus had a lot of influence in their wanting to destroy him as well. And we see that immediately following in verse 47. And we're not going to take the time to read it, but you can make a note there and maybe read it this week in your, uh, in your time with the Lord. But in verses 47 to the end of the chapter, it talks about how they took this and they wanted to, they, they begin immediately to try to figure out how can we destroy, how can we kill Jesus and Lazarus. And so here they are. And so what makes this miracle special? What makes it different? Well, consider this morning that all of the resurrections that Jesus did and really all of the miracles that he formed are quite spectacular in nature. But when you get to the resurrection of Lazarus, it's different because his relationship was with Jesus was deeply personal. When you look at the widow at Nain, there's no indication that Jesus knew them previously or that they had met him. Now it's possible in his comings and goings that they had been in the crowd, or there, but there was no personal uh, relationship here. When he walked up to this widow, he did not call her by her name. When he went to Jairus, Jairus would have been a well-known person in his city uh, as the leader and the ruler of the synagogue, but he wasn't someone that Jesus, is, it's indicated that Jesus had a close personal relationship with. He may have known him. Uh, but they didn't spend a lot of time together. But with Lazarus, it was different. With Lazarus, Jesus, he, he slept in their home. He ate with them. He communed with them. And a matter of fact, in verse number three, it says, when they sent for Jesus, they said, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now we know that Jesus loves everyone, whether they trust him or whether they don't, whether they uh, hate him or whether they obey him. Uh, Jesus loves that. He died for all of us. He loves all of his creation. We understand that. But there's something set apart here in the life of Lazarus and it's only and it's very unique whenever Jesus uh, talks about and refers to that he loves them. It just indicates a deeper love, a closer relationship. 
a, a powerful feeling or moving in Jesus' heart towards them. And there's only four people in the whole New Testament that that's said of. One is the apostle John, and he refers to himself all throughout the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, and so there's John, and that's easy for us to understand. He's been with him for three and a half years. He goes everywhere that he goes. He's often found sitting close to Jesus. He clearly is in the inner circle of the disciples with Jesus. He's, he's very beloved of Christ. Another one, and this one is interesting because it shows that Jesus loves those even that do not accept him, uh, is the rich young ruler. There is a young man uh, who comes to him who is very wealthy and says, what do I have to do to have eternal life? And Jesus tells him, as a test of his faith go and sell all that you have and give it to the fort because he's already said I've kept all the law and so this is a young man that has some pride issues he believes that he's righteous in his own ability uh, and uh, there's no indication that he ever puts his faith and trust in Jesus for salvation but yet the Bible says that Jesus loved him and then there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus who he has a close loving personal relationship with a family that, as I've mentioned, he's found communing with on many occasions. And he even has settled arguments between the sisters in the past. And uh, these are people that he knows well. He loves them. And so that makes this unique. His compassion for their hurt is unique. He, he felt great empathy for them, as we talked about in verse 36. This is interesting. The other resurrections, he did not involve anyone but himself. At the widow Nain's son, it was like, move aside and let me get to the casket. With Jairus' daughter, it was mom and dad, Peter, James, and John, come with me. But here, he says, roll away the stone. Here he involves them in the process. He involves them in the miracle that he's about to perform. And so he's involved them uh, for the preparation of life. Just like he involves Christians today in the preparation of life. What do you mean, Pastor? I mean, uh, somebody had to come to me before I knew that Jesus Christ was my Savior and tell me about the fact that I was a sinner. Someone had to come and tell me that because of that sin, I was going to die and spend eternity in hell. Not because God was cruel, but because that was the price of my sin. Then someone had to tell me that God loved me so much that Jesus was willing to pay for that price. We call that making atonement. And in our current day, we would say, okay, uh, you know, uh, I offended uh, Miss Rebecca, which I do on a regular basis, uh, and then I say I'm sorry, but I have to atone. I have to make up for it to the point where she's no longer angry or upset or bitter at me. So I've got to atone. Well, we had to, atonement had to be made for our sin. Sin separated us from God. And that sin, God had to judge. And God in his love said, I'm going to judge Jesus, who is perfect, instead of you. And if you'll accept that gift, my judgment of my son, then I'll forgive your sin. He's made atonement for you, and you can have new life. That person that shared all that with me made preparation for my new life. And so we are involved in the preparation for new life. Jesus supernaturally gave the life. 
Notice in verse 39, uh, he, uh, he says to them, Jesus said, take ye away the stone. In verse 41, then they took away the stone. In uh, verse uh, 43, Lazarus come forth, and he that was dead came forth. Jesus said, you move the stone. Then he said, Lazarus come forth. In other words, you make preparation, and then I supernaturally will give life. That's the process of salvation. That's a process of being brought into the path and to the life and favor of God. Now, he involved them in the freeing of Lazarus. And we're going to focus really the crux of the message on verse 44 when we get to our third point. But notice what it says. He that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes. He has life, but he's still bound. He has life... But the napkin is still on his head. His face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. So here's Lazarus, new life, but bound. He's still wrapped in the grave clothes. He still has the cloth bound over his face. He's alive, but he can't see clearly. He's alive, but he's not free uh, from the bond of death. He's not free from the bonds of sin. And there's a great parallel in life to sin and death and its consequence and its effect as it applies to our lives spiritually as we interact with God. And what I'm saying here is that Jesus in this miracle comes and demonstrates that he is God, but that he works through his people. And his people moved the stone as an exercise of faith. And he cried out and supernaturally gave new life to Lazarus. But once Lazarus came forth, the, the attention turns again to his people to set him free from the bond. In other words, take the napkin off of his head so that he can see, help, help clear away uh, the, the culture from his vision. Help clear away uh, the sin in his life. From his, from his vision. Listen, there's a lot of things in this world that are evil that the world calls good. And what I'm saying is, is that the word of God begins to give us a clear picture of how God sees things. We have been trained uh, just by being alive uh, to believe and to accept the cultural norms around us. Our generation is the same as every generation before us, all the way back uh, to the creation. Uh, we all just adapt to and feel that what we live in is normal and what goes on is the way that things are okay to be. But that doesn't always line up with what God says is okay. And so G he lays out here that we need help seeing clearly God's viewpoint. And what matters is not what the world accepts. What matters is what does God accept. And people need help being freed from their sin. That's why after salvation we disciple people. That's why we teach them the Bible. That's why we preach the word of God. That's why we uh, try to give a, a, an understanding of what its meaning is. Uh, because that which blinded and bound him, he needed to be loosed from. And what we see as we look at this passage this morning uh, is this miracle of new life and what comes when God gives new life. And the miracle of new life, first of all, helps us to overcome the potent power of sin. And if you're keeping notes there, uh, I, I use that phrasing because sin is powerful. It is very potent. It is very strong. And what we see in sin is uh, the result of a lack of faith. A lack of faith prevents me from believing him. Whether this morning you're here and would say, uh, Pastor, I'm a good person, but I've never heard about what Jesus did for me, or I've never come to a point where I felt 
convicted or burdened in my heart uh, that I needed to be saved from that or rescued from that. Uh, and I've just never given my heart to Christ. I've never invited him to be my savior. If that's your case this morning, uh, listen closely because you can understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and why it's important. But if you're a Christian this morning, I want you to understand as well that the message is not only for those that do not know Jesus as their savior, it's for us too. Because all of us go through difficult times and all of us go through times when sin creeps back in. All of us go through times when sin overwhelms and overcomes us and just as the supernatural power of Jesus gives eternal life, so does it take the supernatural power of the Lord Jesus Christ to restore life to us who have fallen away from him. I'm not saying this morning that when I sin and sin comes back in uh, that, I, that I'm no longer his child. That's not possible. Well, I was born into his family uh, by the supernatural power of God and he keeps me saved. And the Bible's very clear about that. But the reality is, is that when I let sin back in, it binds me. I put the grave clothes back on. I go back to the tomb and I take that stinky napkin and I wrap it back around my head. I go back to the tomb and I pick up those claws and I begin to wrap them around so that I can't move freely. Listen, Jesus said that I've come to give you life. I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. He wants us to have an experience, an abundant life, but sin is always in the way. And we have to understand this morning that sin will destroy if it's not dealt with. And so uh, the miracle of a new life overcomes the power, the potent power of sin. And it restores faith. Consider this morning that he says in chapter 11 and verse 3 here in our text, Behold, him whom thou lovest is sick. Sin is a sickness. Sin is a result of our choice. And we don't, listen, you understand this morning that when God created the earth, when Jesus created everything, there was never any intent for sin to come upon the earth. It was a perfect paradise. It was a perfect world. There was no, uh, the, the bees didn't sting and, uh, and uh, you know, the roses had no thorns. Uh, everything was perfect. The, the climate was perfect. The temperature was perfect. Everything was wonderful all the time. And Jesus said, don't eat that. If you eat that, then you're in disobedience to me. And if you eat that, then sin's going to come upon the earth. And you're going to die. And, and, and the serpent comes, Satan comes as a serpent and says, Eve, uh, if you eat that, you're not going to die. Questioning what God says. It's just like the world around us today. They question everything that God says. They question what God says. And, uh, and Eve ate the fruit. And sure enough, according to what most casual observers would see, she didn't die. She ate it. She was cast out of the garden. A curse was, was, was placed upon the earth about Adam and Eve. Imagine a world in which you didn't sweat, where you didn't stink, where everything was just perfect. And so it was that way. But after sin, they were cursed and pain came in childbearing and sweat came uh, and we had to work and toil on the ground uh, for food. And, uh, and all of these things came and sickness came upon the earth. Listen, now people look and say, how could God allow COVID or how could God allow, uh, allow cancer? How could God, listen, God didn't allow it. We chose sin and when we chose sin, it let sin in and that is the result of sin. God in his love said, let me make a remedy for that and the remedy is Lord Jesus Christ. Because to God, he understands that because of sin, we're going to die. All of us that are here this morning at some point are going to have an end date. We will all expire unless the Lord returns. God is not 
nearly as concerned with our physical body as he is with the condition of our soul. Your soul is going to live forever somewhere. And God looks here and, and makes this distinction and says, listen, uh, sin will destroy and is powerful. Uh, in James chapter 1 and uh, verse 15, he, he tells us about how sin works and how it uh, functions. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When I act upon sin... I should expect destruction in my life. That's true if I don't know that Jesus is my Savior. And that's true if I do know that Jesus is my Savior. If I choose sin, it will bring destruction to my life. It will destroy uh, everything that's important to me. Everything that's of value of me. Why do you know that, Pastor? How do you know? Because that's just what it does. The Bible is clear about that. And, and we see there that sin brings sickness to the body and to the soul. Sin brings death, physical and spiritual. In Romans chapter 5 and uh, verse number 12, and most of you that have been in church any time at all would know this verse, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. And so sin and death are a result, uh, uh, or death is a result of man's sin, physical death and spiritual death. Sin brings corruption. In 2 Peter chapter number 1 and uh, verse number 4, the Bible talks and says, Whereby we are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these, those precious, great and precious promises, ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. She talks again about uh, corruption. Corruption has to do with decomposition. When he speaks about uh, the, the, the corruption in Lazarus, it talks about the decomposition of the body or the decomposition of the soul to sin. And when decomposition starts, there is a stench. And understand that as a Christian, I can have a relationship with God in which I smell sweet and savory to him uh, where he enjoys my presence and fellowship or I can stink because I'm rotting and decaying from sin. Sin that I've chosen over him. Sin that I've embraced in spite of his warning uh, against it. Sin brings corruption. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 uh, in verse uh, number 50, uh, the Bible tells us there, <clears throat> Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, I cannot live a life of corruption and inherit incorruption. I cannot live a, an unholy life and then be rewarded for living a holy life. And so as a Christian who maybe is hardened in my heart against God or hardened in my heart to, in, in adopting the sin that I just want right now, uh, that we all go through those times. That when I come to this, I look and say, hey, I cannot go out and live in sin or corruption and expect that I'm going to get or reap incorruption. No, when we live in incorrupt, when we live in corruption, we'll reap corruption. And so the Bible's clear. Sin brings corruption. Four days Lazarus was in corruption. Four days he was rotting in the grave. And the application here is that corruption of the lost 
brings death as an eternity in hell separated from God. And corruption in the life of a Christian, uh, one who is, is backslidden or hardened toward God, is, is corruption or destruction within the life that we live right now. It destroys that which is valuable. So we see the miracle of new life helps us to overcome the potent power of sin. Secondly, we see that it leads us to the purifying power of the Savior. It's Jesus that cleanses. It's Jesus that purifies. It's Jesus that restores life. And what we see here, uh, as we saw that in sin we are lacking in faith, here we see the result of faith. The first thing we see is that Jesus guided the actions of the focused. He took those that were engaged in the process of what's going on at Lazarus' gravesite and he, he led them. He focused them. He engaged them. Uh, and, he, uh, and he guided their actions. Notice that he says in verse 39, take ye away the stone. In verse 41, they took away the stone. Even those that are there that want him destroyed have followed him there. He led them. Whatever their reason, whatever their motive, whatever, uh, whatever brought them, they came following Jesus to that place. He is leading them to a point of decision. He is leading them to a place where they're going to have to decide, I am either going to be your friend, Jesus, or I'm going to be your enemy. I'm either going to be with you and for you, or I'm going to be against you. I'm either going to accept you, or I'm going to reject you. And by the way, that's, the kind of, that's where I'm leading you this morning. Intentionally, to a point of decision, to where you can look and you can understand clearly your position in Christ, my position in or out of Jesus Christ and what that means. Because there's not anything and any decision in life that you'll ever make that's as important as a decision that you make about what you're going to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realized this morning that I might make a few people upset. Uh, and others I may make help rejoice, but regardless of whether I ever see you again or not, when you leave this place today, I want you to come to grips with the fact that I'm going to spend an eternity either in hell suffering without Christ or in heaven in the presence of Christ being comforted. And as a Christian, that I'm either going to enjoy the blessings of God in my life or I'm going to have to endure the corruption or the agony of everything that sin destroys in my life if I will not turn to him, if I do not repent of my sin. Because let's face it, I've never known a Christian, myself included, that did not find myself at certain points in my life where I was tending to stray back to the grave clothes. Where I was being drawn back to the things of this world. Where I was being drawn back to the things that this flesh desires or what was culturally acceptable rather than embracing what God had given me in my life. When I look and I understand the purifying power of the Savior, we see that he guided the actions of the focus. His followers were there to minister. They were moving the stone. They were helping people get to where they needed to be so that they could be uh, taking in part of what was going on. And the lost who stood there stood in awe. He led them there. And can you imagine being there and being where you knew this guy's been dead for four days and this guy's going to stink and they don't even, his sisters say, don't even open it. We don't want to smell him. He stinks already. And he says, no, open it. Can you imagine being there? Even the enemies that ran back to the Pharisees to try to arrange for Jesus' crucifixion, could not have helped but stand there and be in awe when Lazarus actually got up and walked out. And by the way, Christian, you'd say, well, I've been saved a long time, Pastor. Well, that's wonderful. 
I'm so happy for you, but I hope that it still puts you in awe. When we look and understand the power of sin and the power of a life-giving Savior and the freedom that he gave us over something so powerful, if we'll just accept it, we ought to be in awe. Verse 45 and 46 share with us two groups of people. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Many of the people that were there put their faith and trust in him right there. They believed. How could you see that and not believe? But yet some of them saw and didn't believe. In verse 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. And immediately in verse 47, they're trying to just figure out how can we take them down. The same people experienced exactly the same message, saw exactly the same Miracle and had two completely different responses. Let me tell you what happens in churches all over, not just this one, but everywhere. Fra uh, Frankie comes in, never heard about Jesus before. Then Frankie gives his heart to Christ. Frankie starts growing in the Lord. Then Frankie gets upset with somebody. Then sin creeps back in. Then when sin creeps back in, he starts getting convicted. Then his conviction starts mounting. He, start, he keeps getting more and more determined that he's going to resist it. And then ultimately something happens that becomes his excuse for him to leave. And then all of a sudden the church that 10 years ago or 3 years ago or 2 years ago that helped him find Christ that was wonderful and that he was so happy to be a part of the family of, he now looks and won't answer the pastor's call, tells everybody else the pastor won't even call him, and then calls it a cult happens all the time. Well, it makes it a cult. No one's trying to manipulate you this morning. I'm just presenting facts. No one's trying to cut you off from the rest of the world. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about the rest of the world. I'm just telling you what sin does. And it's amazing that the same people saw the same thing, heard the same message, and had two completely different responses. We could get up from here today and Frankie, another Frankie, could go out telling everybody that he went, man, I wish you would have been at church today. God spoke to my heart. It was so wonderful. And God moved me and my life's never going to be the same because of what Jesus Christ did in my life today. And then Rebecca go home and say, I can't believe that pastor said that past that pastor so mean and so hateful and so ugly. And those people at that church are so cruel and unkind. And, uh, and it's just a big cult. Same sermon, it's all the same music, all the same message, but two completely different responses. And if you've been in church any time at all, you've seen that happen over and over again. And you know that I'm speaking to you the truth this morning. I'm just telling you that at the miracle of the resurrection of Lazarus, as powerful and as, as moving as it was, there were people there that rejected and that went away saying, hey, you Pharisees got to do something about this Jesus out here. He's stirring up trouble. Really? He resurrected someone from the dead. He saved a life. He fixed a broken relationship. He gave sight to the blind. He restored those that were lame. Faith moving. His followers ministered. The lost stood in awe. He gave new life to the fallen. He guided the actions of the focus. Secondly, he gave new life to the fallen. Again, in verse number 44, Lazarus comes out. 
Now I want you to notice about Lazarus' life that Lazarus did not just get up out of the grave and then that's all you hear about him. You don't hear a lot more about him, but you do hear about him in chapter number 12. And notice in verses 1 and 2, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead, and they made him a supper. And Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Where's Lazarus? After the resurrection, after his salvation, or after his resurrection, or restoration, if you're a Christian this morning that needs to be restored. He's at the table with Jesus. He's fellowshipping with the Lord. He didn't just say, okay, Lord, I'm glad you gave me something good. I'm glad you brought me back to life. I'll see you when I get to heaven. No, he's sitting here fellowshipping with him. Verses 9 and 10 uh, of chapter 12. Much of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, Jesus, uh, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. They wanted to see that this man really was changed. And by the way, if you give your heart to Christ, there are going to be people in your life that are going to look at you and they're going to say, is this real? This isn't going to last. I give this about two weeks or I give this about uh, a, a month. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, is this genuine? Is this real? They came to see Lazarus. But the chief priest consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death. And when they do and when Jesus does change your life, not everybody that you expect to be happy about it is going to be happy about it. And people that ought to be helping push you to God are going to try to pull you from God. And you stand strong and you get rid of the grave clothes and you uh, take off the napkin from the head and you get unbound from sin. In verse 17 it says, and this is the last time that Lazarus is mentioned in the scripture. The people therefore that was with him when he called Lazarus out of the grave and raised him from the dead bear record. In other words, they gave witness and testimony to the fact that this man was dead and now he's alive and he is out living for the glory of God. That ought to be our testimony this morning. Our testimony ought not be we heard of the power of Jesus and we rejected it and now our life is a wreck. And our testimony should not be uh, that I was saved and I was living for God and then I turned against him and now my life is in shambles. Our testimony should be that Jesus saved us and we stand in all of his power and glory and we faithfully serve him till we come into his presence and he can say honestly to us, well done thou good and faithful servant. We see the miracle of new life overcame the potent power of sin. We see that it leads us to the purifying power of the Savior. And then thirdly and lastly, that we see the powerful possibilities of the saved. What I mean by that is he didn't save you to just sit in the pew. He saved us to make a difference. And what we've seen is the, the results of a lack of faith in sin. And we've seen the results of faith exercised in salvation and resurrection. And now we see actions of faith practically in the Christian life. The powerful possibilities for the saved. Three things that we see in verse 41. Then took they away the stone in verse 44. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus saith unto them, loose him and let him go. Jesus could have just said, grave clothes fall off. I mean, if he could speak and make the man come back to life, he could have said, grave clothes drop off. And he could have said, stone, get out of the way. But he didn't. Because you and I are supposed to have a part in bringing people to Christ. And you and I are supposed to have a part in teaching people about him once they accept him. 
to help them reach spiritual maturity, to help feed them the Word of God, to help them understand the truths of God's Word. And what we see here is three things primarily. First, there's the possibility that all of us have of clearing the path. Move the stone out of the way. And we all ought to be busy moving the stone out of people's way. I'm glad this morning that Sarah uh, has some friends and brought them to church. I'm glad this morning that Frankie has some friends uh, and brought them, brought them to church. And others of you have friends and you brought them to church this morning. That's wonderful. You know what you did? You're trying to help clear the obstacles out of the way so that they can hear the gospel. So that God has an opportunity to work in their heart. And I'm not saying that anyone that's here this morning is a bad person. I'm sure everyone here is a great person. But it's not about being a good person or a bad person. It's about, am I a child of God or not? And if I'm a Christian, if I am his child, am I in fellowship with him or am I rebelling against him? The powerful possibilities of the saved is this, is that you all, and we all have the possibility of being path clearers for someone. To remove obstacles from someone being able to come to Christ. Not only that, secondly, we see the possibility of giving clear understanding. We need someone, especially when we first come to Christ, to sit down with us and with the Bible and to teach us what it means. There are terms in the scripture that are not common to us today. There are things in there that we need to understand. We need someone to teach us what it means to be growing in his grace. That sounds great. It's great church vernacular. But the reality is, is that the average person on the street, if you walk up to some guy out on the street that's never been to church before and say, yeah, I'm just excited that I'm growing in the grace of the Lord. He has no idea what you're talking about. And by the way, a lot of people that trust Christ as their Savior in the first weeks after they're saved, they don't have any idea what we're talking about either. They need somebody to teach them. And they have a hunger. They want to learn. And the Bible talks about as sincere babes desire the sincere milk of the word. As babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the word. We need someone uh, to feed and we need to be feeding those that just came to Christ. We need to be helping them understand the scripture. Where do you see that pastor? Because he had a napkin on his face. He couldn't see. And I didn't bring a handkerchief up here this morning or a napkin. But if I put it over my face, I guarantee you I might be able to see a shadow walking up to me. But I wouldn't be able to tell who it is. I wouldn't have a clear vision. I wouldn't have a clear understanding. I need it. And his hands are tied. He's bound in grave clothes. Take the napkin off his face so he can see. That's what Jesus says. He said, listen, I performed the supernatural miracle of giving him life again. You go take his clothes, his grave clothes off. Pull that napkin off his head so he can see. Loose him. Unbind him. And here's the miraculous thing. As he's unbound and as they begin to unwrap those grave clothes, finally an arm pops free. And now he can start to help. And then the other arm comes free. And then he can start. And what you see is the growth of grace in people's lives in Christ as they're restored as a backslidden Christian or a new Christian that's growing in the grace of the Lord. That we come to a place that as we are being seen the word of God clearly and we're submitting to the will of God and we are being unbound from the clothing of our sin. And that's the representation here. That our sin binds us. That the possibility of giving clear understanding by removing that napkin or the possibility, thirdly here, of coaching someone to an abundant life. That's what discipleship is all about. It's about teaching principles from the Word of God and coaching someone to live for Him, to live for His glory, to understand what it is to have His blessing and His power and His joy. Too many Christians have no joy today because they're bound back up in their same old dead, dirty, smelly sin clothes. 
that they return to. He set us free from that. Coach people to abundant life, edify one, encourage others, and help people live for God. I would say this morning as we wrap up that sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Amen. That God is working and that God uh, can bring conviction to every sin. That every hardened heart can be softened. That every hardened life can be broken. That Jesus can bring incredible, saving, miraculous resurrection power to the life of those that have never received Him as a Savior. Or to the dead Christian who is wallowing and bound in their sin. Who has been hardened in their heart to the things of God. And though they're still His child, they have been separated from His fellowship. And He can resurrect them to that saving grace as well. And through Christ, every Christian can be that one that rolls away stones. Every Christian can be that one that ever undercovers eyes. Every Christian can be that one that looks to loose the bonds of sin from someone. Every Christian can make a difference. You stop and you think this morning, there's somebody in your life that made a difference. I'm grateful this morning that there were many people that God put in my path as a young teenage boy and an older teenage boy and in my younger years that made a difference in my life. Someone that filled in a gap, someone that made a difference, someone that said the right thing at the right time or took the right action at the right time to prevent me from ruining my life was sin. It's the grace of God. It's faith in action. And every Christian must come to a place where we lacked faith and our life was wrecked by sin, but God gave us faith. Pastor, I want to have faith. How do I get it? Go to the Word of God. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The more I hear the Bible, the more I hear preaching, the more I read His pages, the more He'll give me faith. So, Pastor, that sounds good and I want to believe, but I'm just not there yet. What do I need to do? You just need to hang in there. You need to keep coming. You need to pray that God will give you the faith to believe and to understand. I'm not trying to twist your arm this morning. I'm just trying to tell you that the more exposure you have to God's word, the more he works and the more he builds and the more faith he gives in your life. And if you lack faith in this moment, don't give up. Don't lose hope. Just keep praying and just keep reading and just keep listening because God will give you faith. And if you have faith, let it work in your life and let it grow you and respond to it and begin to make a difference in the lives of others and look for ways to act out that faith. Be a blessing to someone. Be a teacher to someone. Be an encourager to someone. Speak the truth in love and be patient when that truth that's spoken in love gets a lash back. It's not received well oftentimes. Truth isn't always wanted. I know, I know a lot of times my wife speaks to me the things that I need to hear, but I'm not always really excited to hear it. And sometimes my response isn't what it should be. But after I go away and pray and think, and I have to come back and confess that she was right and I was wrong. It's amazing how it never seems to work the other way. <laughs> But it's true. What I'm saying this morning is make a difference. If you're here this morning and you're the one that's lying in the grave, may I say to you that you sit amongst people that want to be involved in rolling the stone away so that Jesus can speak. Here's life. Come forth. If you're here this morning and you're just standing in the crowd, there's an opportunity for you to get involved and begin rolling away stones. And if you're here this morning, and you look at what happens in the lives of other people as they humble themselves for God. Stand in awe and rejoice. Be a part. But no matter what you do, don't be one that rejects and runs back to the Pharisees. Don't be one that hardens your heart. Don't be one that closes yourself off. 
let the grace of God unleash the miraculous power of the Son of God in your life.